All right. Good morning. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It is Saturday, November 19th, 2022. And today is the Saturday, I guess, the eve of the last Sunday of the church here. So you heard the hymn of the day for the last Sunday of the church here, which is uh, Wake Awake for Night is Flying. The uh, uh, Is it the king or the queen of the chorales? I can't remember. One of the two. I always get the two confused. Um, of the Lutheran chorales, considered one of the uh, most significant contributions to Western music um, from Lutherans, even more so than, uh, you know, the works of Bach. So let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. Memory verse. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Our psalm is Psalm 104, beginning in verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take your breath or take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right. Speaking of judgment, uh, we confess the third article of the Creed. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. All right. Our Old Testament reading for tomorrow is from Isaiah chapter 65. So uh, this is a word from Isaiah about the comfort of the final judgment. I think this is an important note to make. 
uh, we're going to talk about it after we get through the two readings, uh, Old Testament and Epistle, that the purpose of confessing, uh, believing that Christ will come to judge again the living and the dead, will come again, yes, to judge the, both the living and the dead, of whose kingdom there will be no end, right, is to uh, both, of course, threaten those who live outside of faith, but also to comfort those who live in Christ. And we, I think we miss maybe the second half of that, that Christ's coming in, in judgment is good news for those who believe. Uh, uh, I think we have that problem with, um, uh, with other doctrines, too, that Christ has chosen me, right? He has called, gathered, enlightened, and sanctified me in the true faith, right? That's God's election, his calling. But sometimes people hear a doctrine of election as, as a judgment. Um, well, they only hear, the word, hear it as judgment, that is, against those who do not believe, who have refused uh, the work of the Spirit, Right? Which is also certainly true, but that's not why we preach it. That's God's alien work. The judgment is not um, his goal or purpose. The goal or purpose is that they would repent and believe. All right, so uh, Isaiah does a good job here of reminding us uh, of the blessings of the final judgment. Uh, when we look at go to Bible study tomorrow, we're going to be in Ezekiel, we'll hear of the terrors of judgment, right? And so it's both. And we rightly want to confess both aspects and, of course, take comfort in um, the good news of that judgment. So here we go, Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die one hundred years old, but the sinner being one hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days... So shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food." They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Right? This should uh, also probably remind you uh, of St. John's Apocalypse and the revelation of um, chapter 21 and chapter 22, right? which has, I'll just share a little bit and you'll hear the echoes here. Um, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So bring that to bear tomorrow as well with the uh, the ten virgins, right? And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So you note, uh, even John takes it another step further than Isaiah, where Isaiah says they, they're going to live 
extremely long lives like that of a tree. Um, and then John says, no, it's even greater than that, that they will live um, forever. There will be no more death. Um, let's see, what else in here? I mean, there's more uh, when it comes to the city and the river of life, right? Uh, let's see, anything else I wanted to talk about this? Not, not yet. All right. Uh, so again, this is a word of comfort and encouragement um, for those we might say, to quote John's Apocalypse again, uh, are in the midst of the great tribulation. Right? The new heavens and the new earth uh, will be ours. Right? And then speaking of comfort, again, um, here's a, another theme. We preach the last day, not to fear uh, and, or for fear and for despair, but for comfort and hope. Right? First Thessalonians 5. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we wake or sleep, we shall, or we should, live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. All right, so there you can see Paul doing exactly what we we're just discussing <clears throat> to uh, to encourage and comfort and to remind uh, one another that we are not of the darkness, but we are of the light. Uh, so uh, when we hear the parable tomorrow, I don't know if it's a parable, but whatever you want to call it, the description of the last day with the ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish, uh, there is a way that it could be preached, which would be that you... Um, you ought to be terrified, or at least you should be completely concerned whether or not you have oil enough in your lamp, right? So be a, you know, fill your oil. How's the, how did the old salty song go? Give me oil in my lamp, keep it burning. Yeah. Well, okay, fine. Ask the Lord for oil in your lamp. The, the fact of the matter is he has, and he does, and he continues to. <laughs> we just don't see it. We don't recognize that the oil that he gives in our lamps is what he's always about um, in divine service preaching his word, forgiving our sins, feeding us with his body and blood, preparing us each and every day, actually, for the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Right? Comfort one another with these words. All right. Um, now, what I'm going to introduce to you today is uh, something different. All right? And, and it's not meant to scare you. It's meant to actually help you. Um, one of the uh, fourfold disciplines uh, that were classically taught in our seminaries uh, one was was called, uh, well, usually there were four departments. There was the uh, practical department, which uh, usually include things like pastoral care and preaching. There was the exegetical department. So that department, and that, the, this is still true in both seminaries. The exegetical department was the, the art of Bible interpretation. So uh, these these were the people, the scholars of the New Testament and Old Testament in particular. Um, then there was the what's called systematics department, or the you could call it the dogmatic department. So those were the um, those who were particularly 
concerned or, or cared for organizing or systematizing what we believe into chief articles. You might think of uh, our Lutheran confessions as dogmatic or systematic texts, right? Where they walk through article by article, sin, um, the law, the gospel, justification. So they create, you know, as we talked about in the sermon last week, um, categories, right, of, of thought from the scriptures. And so let's see, what did we get? Oh, and then historical would be the fourth. So there's the not only the history of the Christian church, but um, the history of, of all those who have believed. So Old Testament history, New Testament history, um, and then, of course, um, up to the contemporary history. Because we are a historic church. Of course, Christ died in time. He rose in time. He's testified to by eyewitnesses. It's, it's a historic event, right? It's not ahistorical. And so... We're, we're quite concerned about the history um, that surround not only the events of the scriptures, but also um, in between Old and New Testament periods, um, and then what's happening in, in other uh, parts of the world at the same time, and then, of course, what's happened with the church since. All right, so four departments, just to remind you, um, the practical, the exegetical, the systematic, and the historical. Um, the what was I going to say about this? It's somewhat of an artificial distinction. Uh, not really. I mean, it's just a it's it's a way to divide up the faculty and and give them focuses. Uh, but dogmaticians or systematicians, those who confess doctrine, have to interpret scripture as well. So they uh, they tend to be great exegetes, right? You can't really interpret history without understanding the history of dogma, right? Actually, how doctrine has been confessed. So. These departments are somewhat um, malleable. One of the greatest works of um, systematic theology amongst, among the Lutheran Church, if not the greatest in our history, um, are what's called the Theological Commonplaces by Johann Gerhardt. Johann Gerhardt. Um, this, this volume here, translated into English, is volume 30 and 31 of his history, um, system of, of doctrine. And on uh, this volume... Here in English, two volumes put together, 30 and 31, is on the resurrection of the dead, and then on the last judgment is 31. All right, so when we want to talk about the last judgment, this is actually a great resource. It's like an encyclopedia of doctrine, because it it, it walks through and categorizes um, the last judgment. Um, it's called a commonplace here in English. Uh, it's usually, the Latin was the a loci, and the loci method is, uh, uh, it was one that, Gerhardt learned from a Melanchthon, you know, Luther's contemporary, um, who also wrote a series of loches. And this was a way, again, just to say, um, what do we believe, right? Say, using the creed as a framework, according, and then what does the Bible say? What do other, um, you know, and then which parts of the Bible say what, right? Old Testament, Psalms, um, the history, you know, versus the, the prophetic writings. Uh, but then also, like, what do... What do the apocryphal books say that are in between Old and New Testament? What does the New Testament confess? Uh, what do what did the early church fathers confess? What do later medieval fathers confess? Right? And putting that all together so that you have a a complete picture of of the tradition that has been handed down. All right. So um, listen to what he has to say about this volume on the Last Judgment. Actually, let me let me read to you his preface. Or dedicate, how do you want to say that? Dedicatory letter um, to the magnificent, most noble men, most eminent in the splendor of their station, and piety, and authority, and prudence, and in the use 
their use of things, the Lord Councillors and Senators of the celebrated powerful states of Strasbourg, Nuremberg, Ulm, and Rotenburg, Ob der Tauber, to the Lords and their individual honors, my sponsors and patrons, salvation and grace from God the Father through Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's his uh, introduction. <laughs> Listen to what he has to say. Grave and serious is the admonition of our Savior in, in Mark 13. Watch, stay awake, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man who goes on a journey, leaving his home and giving his servants over power over their possessions. Uh, skipping ahead, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Three things should be especially observed in these words of Christ. First, of course, is the object of this serious admonition, namely, those to whom it is directed. In the history of the Passion, it is recorded that Christ, having taken Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, went into the garden and stricken with gravest agony, commanded them that they should stay awake and pray. All right. So that's how he starts um, the letter. And then, um, so then he, he just walks through in the introduction here, you know, why should we, what should we stay awake and watch for and pray for? All right. And so volume 30 is the resurrection and volume 31 is the last judgment. All right, so in the introduction to the Last Judgment, this is what he says, and I'm just going to skip around a little bit. Um, he, he starts with the words from Hebrews chapter 9. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. All right, Hebrews 9.27. Three points are set before us in this statement of the Apostle. The first one is the infallibility of the final judgment, which will surely follow. The second... I'm skipping a lot, large chunks here. The universal universality of the last judgment, just as death is common to all people after the fall, um, so also the final judgment remains for all after death. And then he quotes a bunch of scripture. Three, the order of the judgment and the quality of its succession. It's appointed for man to die once, and after this, the judgment. All right. So you can see how he's just organizing his thought based off of this scripture. All right, then he, then he starts another heading. The next heading is Commendation of the Doctrine of the Last Judgment. Therefore, the article on the Last Judgment follows in fitting order since death and resurrection were discussed in the previous, or in the preceding commonplaces, volume 30. In fact, in its own place on death, which is um, commonplace 29, and with truthful arguments, we demonstrated that the judgment will immediately follow the resurrection and immediately precede the burning of the world. But the doctrine of the last judgment should please us for the same reasons why the article of the resurrection of dead was commended to us. You see how he's, yeah, this, this, you would think this would be dry, um, just academic writing, but it's not. He's, he's definitely a pastor and a preacher, right? So it's commended to us, one, because it is also a mystery unknown to nature, but revealed only in the word. The heathen have seen something of the last judgment through a dark cloud and curtain, either because they have wisely concluded that divine justice requires such a judgment, or because they have been convinced that things will turn out well for the good and badly for the wicked, because of the prescript of respectable and disgraceful things grafted divinely on the human mind. He's talking about natural law there. And then two, I'm skipping a bunch, again, because it is the foundation for every life-giving comfort in this perilous adversities of life. Three, because it is very effective, it's a very effective incentive to for piety, knowing that there's going to be a judgment. For he who truly believes and gives serious attention to the following will arrange his life and all his activities for godliness and will walk carefully in the true fear of God, right? Knowing that judgment will come. And four, because it is a proper treasure of the church, as is clear from the ideas cited a little earlier uh, regarding the first reason. And then he quotes a sermon from St. Augustine. 
All right. So then what does he do? All right. This, this is... Uh, this is actually what we should teach our children to do. And actually, I argued this in the sermon last week, is that, that it's natural to them that they would order and systematize and categorize things. Um, so he does that. First, the etymology. What does the word judgment mean? Um, how? What are the different words used for judgment in, in both Old Testament and New Testament? All right. Um, and then chapter two is whether there is a last judgment. Right? So there... Te- um, passages from Scripture, first from the Old Testament, then from Moses, uh, then from Job, then from the Psalms, uh, then from the prophets, and then lots of prophets, lots of prophets, prophets, prophets. Then from the apocryphal books, so like Second Esdras, Tobit, Wisdom. Um, then from the New Testament, so the first the Gospels, and then uh, the Epistles. All right. And so then a summary at the end, what should we should be observed from these passages of the New Testament? All right, now, what's the basis for the judgment? And how can we learn that basis? We can learn it from, um, of course, from the scriptures, but also from types and from parables. And so then he looks at typology and, and then parables, like the wedding at Cana and others. Um, then the creeds and the consensus of the church. Then he actually makes some rational arguments about judgment, just from nature or from reason. Then what... Um, whether Lutherans deny the last judgment, apparently there were some, um, and then some more arguments. All right. Chapter three is the cause of the judgment, all right? Uh, the efficient cause. So that's, of course, God in Christ, um, of course, according to human nature, right? Because we are sinners, there is a judgment. Uh, and there's much argument about that. Then there's a question. Right? So he recognizes there's going to be objections to what he just made. So his first objection he wants to respond to is the return of Christ to judgment opposed to his presence on earth. Second question, is Christ's return to judgment going to be local, like in one place? Third, what is the cloud going to be in which Christ will come? <laughs> you know, So just find scriptures or hear what others have to say. Uh, why is Christ going to come in the clouds? Right, so if that's a question you've asked, he has an, he has uh, actually six different points here of answer from the scriptures and from others. Fifth question: Is Christ going to appear in a glorious form or in a form of a servant? All right, um, and then there's more causes of judgment. How is God going to judge? All right, so that was the efficient cause. Then the material of the last judgment. These are just. Um, Aristotelian categories that are used to try to to break things down um, into its component parts. All right. So there will be the wicked angels. There's going to be men in the judgment. Uh, Of course, the Antichrist um, will be present. All right. Are irrational creatures going to be judged too, he asks? Are good angels going to be judged? Right. What's the real object of judgment? All right. Uh, What about acts of mercy? How are they going to be included in the judgment? Are you going to be judged on the basis of your works? All right. All right. And then he taught. So we had the efficient cause. We had the material of the judgment. Now we have the form of the last judgment. So how is one prepared? How is it going to be administered? And again, he's just quoting scripture. Uh, and then also, obviously, others who taught according to scripture. Are the sins of the godly and the ungodly going to be publicized equally in the judgment? I mean, that's an interesting question, right? All right. Now we're trying, I'm trying to get to the point where he talks about Isaiah. <laughs> All right. It's quoted throughout, but uh, in particular. Oh, I could just keep going here. 
All right. And then chapter six is on the end purpose and effect of the last judgment. All right. Chapter seven, the attendant circumstances of the last judgment. So all the, the place, the time, uh, the things that come before and the things that will happen as a result. All right. Uh, and of course, the Bible has something to say about all these things. So let's go find, go look at them. All right. Am I almost there yet? I think I am. Each section has a, a number. All right. Nope. I'm not there yet. Is Christ going to come in the middle of the night, preceding the festival of Easter? Oh, apparently there were some people who thought that was true. All right, so again, more questions, more questions. What about the preaching of the gospel? Uh, what about the signs? What about the kingdoms? What about the revealing of the Antichrist? All right. Um, what about the signs in the sun and moon and stars? And then in the heavens? What about the sign of the Son of Man? All right. Um, why Christ foretold the signs. Again, another question that is often asked. All right. What about um, the Jews? Will they be led back to Canaan before the last day? It's, of course, a question. What about the universal conversion of the Jews? Is that to be expected before the last day? All right. People ask about that. All right. So, um, finally, we're going to get to something <laughs> that I wanted to cover, uh, which is the consequences of the judgment. All right, so we'll just look at this one um, as an example because he uses um, the Isaiah text. All right, so here's here's how he starts. The consequences of the judgment are, first, the transferring of the godly into heaven and the casting of the ungodly into hell, which we said earlier could also be referred to the effects of judgment. Two, the burning of heaven and earth. See 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 20. Three, the destruction of earthly principates and kingdoms. And he gives citations for that. Four, the complete abolition of death. And there he quotes Isaiah and Hosea and 1 Corinthians 15. Five, the handing over of Christ's kingdom into the hands of the Father. Uh, scripture citations there. And quite a bit on that one. So, and then six, where's six? Six, the abrogation of the ministry of the church. Right? There's no need for the church because the church and you know will be heaven and earth all together no separate ministry it is one ministry seven the consummation of christ's benefits which begin in this life for at that time the renewal of the godly which grows day by day will have been completed and at that time sight will take place of faith and perfect enjoyment will take place of hope um, eight the most generous compensation for the hardships and tribulations which the saints have endured in this life for christ's sake Right? So he has a commonplace on eternal life, which is uh, 34. <laughs> um, nine, the liberation of creation from slavery and corruption. See Romans 8, verse 20. But what kind of deliverance will that will be, whether one happening through annihilation or renewal will be considered in its own place of the end of the world, which is commonplace of 32. And then 10, the creation of a new heaven and new earth. There you go. This is, again, one of the consequences of the judgment. Uh, quoting Isaiah 65, Behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. They will not come up into the heart. See Isaiah 66, 22, 2 Peter 3, 13, Revelation 21, 2. And then the eternal glorification of God um, and the mourning and blaspheming of the ungodly. All right. And then, uh, let's see... Chapter 9 is on things that conflict with the Last Judgment. Chapter 
Um, 10 is on the use of this commonplace, all right? So he puts this at the very end. He's like, well, now how are you supposed to use all of this information here, this big book? Uh, first, he says it's theoretical, didactic, all right, to teach, to reprove, and to correct. Um, the second or is what he calls the practical use, generally, um, just to be mindful of the last day and of what Christ has said, all right, and to encourage one another in that. Um, the specific use is for training and then uh, for correction, all right? So to use all of what Christ teaches about the last judgment for training and for correction, which is what we've been doing here. And he gives lots of examples of that being done by preachers throughout history, all right? And then um, to exhort, uh, that is to encourage or to urge us to repentance um, and... What would be the other aspect? Uh, to be watchful. So we'll hear that tomorrow. All right. And that's what I wanted to look at. Keep watch and stay awake. He adds clearly, when I say to you, I say to all, keep watch. For Christ's mouth, the apostles repeated the serious exhortation to vigilance. First Thessalonians 5 verse 6. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us stay awake and be sober, etc. All right. So I think we might focus on that theme tomorrow. All right. So to be vigilant. And to watch, and how does one how is one vigilant and watch? So, uh, and then of course there's the consoling use, right? How we console people in the midst of difficult times of, that Christ will come again. All right. So then chapter eleven presents the definition of the last judgment, and he doesn't get to that until the very end. All right. What's the definition of the last judgment? <laughs> um, so we call this inductive method, and so the conclusion actually comes at the end, and the be- and everything else is leading to that conclusion to finally say, okay, what is the summary of everything we've learned from Scripture? So it might seem a little pedantic, but of course it's a great reference point, um, you know. And and Gerhard is encyclopedic. I mean, he had quite a methodology. I think there's people who've written about his method to collect um, all the Scriptures on all these various topics, and then systematize them or order them so that if you do have a question, um, ultimately I can find an answer. Like sometimes when people ask, oh, I don't know, uh, what's life going to be like between uh, our death and our resurrection? What well, you can guess that in one of the Lochis, Mr. Gerhardt, Johann Gerhardt has um, a collection of scriptures and then other um, pious opinions from tradition um, on, you know, the inter that intermediate time between one's death and when one rises from the dead, you know, for example. And uh, so I'm really happy that Concordia Publishing House has been spending the time to translate these here as as of late um, so that they're not lost um, in translation, so to speak, or without translation. And uh, so just as a a side note then, um, I will use this then to help develop out the sermon um, because he's done an extensive job already collecting you know, on a particular topic that I'd like to preach upon from the gospel text for tomorrow, um, other scriptures that that can be brought to bear um, so that one has kind of a full view of that topic. And uh, this this is, again, something like with Bible study. I know that people get a little intimidated by the idea uh, of of study of God's Word and uh, maybe even repulsed to the idea of of school, right, Um, because of maybe their poor experience in day school growing up or something like that. Uh, but actually God has commended to us that we, uh, that we read Mark, learn and inwardly digest his word. You can call that school. You can call that Bible study. 
Sunday school, Bible study. Those could be negative for you. Um, you could call it just simply listening to Jesus, right? Um, but then using using one's own reason and intellect, which God has given, um, to uh, retain and to organize and to think um, through um, and, and even to confess dogma. And uh, the last day is one of those where it'd be easy just to say, well, I don't believe that there's going to be a last day. Um, and like, well, how do you how do you get to that conclusion if one knows God's word? Well, maybe maybe we don't know God's word as well as we ought. And a tool like uh, Gerhardt's Commonplaces can actually help lead you through that. Uh, so maybe you decide you just want to be an expert in the uh, resurrection. So then you could get this volume and um, use use that to contain or to learn all all that can be said about the resurrection of the body. Anyway. So there you are. <laughs> I know that this is not something I've introduced to you before. They're usually sitting on my she- on my shelves behind my door. So when you would come in, you wouldn't even see them because um, that's where all the systematics works are over there. And he's not alone. There's others uh, that are similar to this, not, not nearly as extensive as Gerhard. Uh, but it's really a treasure and it's a benefit to us and can help our study. All right. So, um, the God of Abram Praise. We haven't done an introduction to this this week. I haven't told you more about it. So let me grab my volume on this. 798. The hymn is a loose and Christianized paraphrase of Thomas Oliver's Hebrew Hebrew hymn, Yigdal Elohim Hai, a hymn based on the 13 articles of faith of Rabbi Moses Mahimonides. I think that's how you pronounce it. He was a medieval rabbi. This literal translation from the Hebrew of the 13 articles was provided to John Julian by Nathan Adler, chief rabbi of the British Empire in the 19th century. All right, and then it lists the the 13 um, articles. I'll spare you those. Some ascribe Yigdal Elohim High to uh, Daniel ben Judah, who flourished it with the, or yeah, flourished who flourished in the first half of the 14th century. Others attribute it to Emmanuel ben Solomon of Rome, a better-known poet. To this day, Yigdal is sung regularly at services of the eve of the Sabbath, Friday evenings, and at other times. The Hebrew version. Hmm? Oliver's would have heard Yigdal Elohim High sung in its primary setting, responsorily between cantor and congregation on the occasion of a visit to London's great synagogue. That's Duke's Place, Aldgate. According to one account, Oliver's attended the Sabbath Eve service with Charles Wesley to hear the young Meyer Leon, whose unusually sweet voice have brought him much fame. Wesley wrote in his journal, I was desirous to hear Mr. Leone sing at the Jewish synagogue. I never before saw a Jewish congregation behave so decently. <laughs> Meyer Leon uh, also appeared in London Theater, where he was known as an by the Italianate stage name Michael Leone. At the synagogue, Leon was employed as a mashorer, a tenor soloist who, along with a bass singer, assisted the Hazam, the chief cantor. Both Jews and non-Jews were reportedly welcome to hear him in this role. It was after hearing Yigdal chanted in the manner that Oliver's a cobbler and lay preacher in the Wesleyan movement was moved to arrange it as an English hymn. Julian believes this anecdote to be genuine. Quote, I remember my father telling me that he was once standing in the aisle of the City Road Chapel during a conference in Wesley's time. Thomas Oliver's 
one of the preachers came down to him and said, look at this, I have rendered it from the Hebrew, giving it, as far as I could, a Christian character. And I've called on Leone, the Jew, who has given me a synagogue melody to suit it. Here is the tune, and it is to be called Leone. You didn't know any of this, did you? I didn't. According to the tradition reported by Julian, Oliver's wrote the 12 stanza paraphrase with a Christian character at the home of John Blakewell in Westminster, an area of central London. The author provided copious biblical references for virtually every line. It was published as a booklet, and the popular tract quickly went through multiple editions from the earliest undated one, around 1770, through the 8th in 1773. John Wesley included the hymn in his pocket hymn book for the for the use of Christians of all denominations, London, 1785, and it became popular in Methodist circles. James Montgomery later published it in his Christian Psalmist, 1825, where he muses, The noble ode, the God of Abraham praise, though the essay of an unlettered man claims especially honored, there is not in our language a lyric of more majestic style, more elevated thought, or more glorious imagery. Its structure, indeed, is attra- unattractive, and on account of the short, sorry, lines, unoccasionally, or occasionally uncouth, but like a stately pile of architecture, severe and simple in design, it strikes less on the first view than after deliberate examination, when its proportions become more graceful. Its dimensions expand, and the mind itself grows greater in contemplating it. All right? So you have this um, English synagogue in the uh, that's been singing it for a few hundred years at that point, uh, but in Hebrew. And then it gets turned into a Christian hymn, taking the, um, the Abrahamic elements and uh, confessing them through Christ by a, a lay preacher, and then using a, a, a tune supplied by the synagogue. Isn't that crazy? And now you know. All right. Uh, I think we should just sing the end. Let's sing stanzas eight and and, uh, nine, if we would. God who reigns on high, the great archangel sing, and holy, holy, holy cry, almighty King, who was and is the same, and evermore shall be, Jehovah Father, Great I am, we worship Thee. The whole triumphant host Give thanks to God on high Hail Father, Son, and Holy Ghost They have cry Hail Abram's God and mine 
I join in heavenly lays. Almighty and majesty are thine hand and bless praise. All right, so we'll leave it at that. I'm sure we'll sing it in church sometime soon. All right, let's pray our collect. O Lord, so rule and govern our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit, that ever mindful of the end of all things and the day of your just judgment, we may be stirred up to holiness of living here and dwell with you forever hereafter. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray for the households of our church, especially with Marion, Aaron, Lindsay, Martin, Tara, Ryan and Cassidy, Philip and Julie. Pray in thanksgiving for the auction committee and volunteers that made it a success. Pray for our catechumens, Christian, Wyatt, Aaliyah, Lydia, Charlie, Kaylee, and Kimberly. Pray for those who are ill, receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Joe, Kelsey, Walt, Christopher, Dan, Brad, Ron, Marla, Betty, Willis, Pat, Merlin, and Heidi. Pray for our homebound Bev, Willis, Ed, Mickey, Paul, and Pauline. Pray for the missions and mercy work of the church, especially the Federwitz families. We pray in intercession for the government and those in authority or under authority. And we continue to pray with those who grieve the death of Dale. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right. So yeah, there's a lot that can be learned. Um, I've said this before, and I think it's worth reiterating here again, that, uh, you know, the the tradition and the history of the church, um, even just the knowledge of scriptures is is without bottom. And that that's not meant to be intimidating. I don't think, I don't believe so. I believe, you know, that it's given by God then for a, a lifetime of learning and for study and for, for you know, expansion. And I mean, there's just no end to it. Um, that's, and that should be a joy and a delight to us, not, you know, that the central articles of our faith are well known and confessed, and even a child can understand what the gospel is, as Luther reminds us. Um, and yet, on the other hand, there's, there's, no, um, there's no end for, well, for the joy of learning more and more of what uh, Christ has revealed to us. And uh, as Christians, so... I don't think it should be intimidating. I don't think it should be scary. I don't know why people are 
Um, maybe they just don't want to learn anything new. Um, I'm maybe it's my own personality that I'm happy to learn about many things that I don't know anything about. I listen to uh, podcasts that cover all sorts of different topics and um, disciplines and things I really don't know anything about. Um, just because I'm curious, how much of that I retain, I don't know. It's the same thing with the scriptures, though. Um, but why not? Why not be curious and learn? I know that's not maybe everybody's um, desire, but. Um, you know, and then, but I suppose there is that challenge that we don't want to get, you know, have the um, the truth that we are forgiven freely for Christ's sake. Um, you know that that might get lost in the in the mix, and uh, we kind of miss the point. <laughs> so we, I suppose, we should be concerned about that. But uh, in my opinion, the the liturgy in particular protects us from that. It always keeps Christ um, shed blood for us for our forgiveness front and center from beginning to end, uh, regardless of what. Uh, readings and uh, preaching is you know comes out that day so all right i think we'll leave it there uh, thanks for uh, being patient with me especially at the beginning has worked out you know trying to show you some more detail on that altarpiece or talk to you about it so uh, god be with you all keep you safe and we'll see you in the morning for divine service We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.